0: Uh, I'm Helene Loper. Uh, I'm from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Um, I was born, baptized, raised, um, confirmed, and Presbyterian-trained. But my own story is that um, I was outed while I was in seminary by someone who was in the closet, um, and the Presbyterian Committee on Ministry, a preparation for ministry, um, did not tell me that was the issue for why they were not wanting to, to approve my candidacy um, when I finally figured out what the problem was it was my senior it was right before I was starting my senior year um, and so I came out but in the process had to leave the Presbyterian process and I kn- so I knew I was leaving the Presbyterian Church in order to follow my call to ministry um, I went uh, that year to the women's interseminary conference that was held at uh, San Francisco Theological Seminary and that was where I met Janie Spar As I was, I literally had just come out to my then husband asking for a divorce the weekend before that. And um, knew I was going to graduate from seminary, and that would be my last tie to the Presbyterian Church. Um, I didn't know where I was going, but um, I knew that was where I was in the process. And so as I was leaving, I was also meeting the movement, because I had just come out to myself. I stayed in touch with Janie uh, as I transferred into the Metropolitan Community Churches and was ordained there. Um, when the General Assembly sent out yet another study in the early 90s, um, I was still in Alabama. I had gone back there because that's where I felt like I was called to do ministry. Our people needed pastors there and there really weren't any any places where they could go at the time. So I was in MCC in Alabama. Uh, there was a presbytery, uh, North Alabama was... was um, going to take seriously the uh, instructions to, t- to study again the sexuality. But they could not find anyone to, to come to that committee who had been through the clergy process um, to talk about it. And so I had a colleague in, in Huntsville who knew me. And she suggested that I come up. And that was where I began what I call my soul force process of going back and telling my story and finding my own <coughs> healing. Um, And so I I began doing that and I had several other opportunities with local congregations in the 90s to to go back and um, share my story But I kept in touch with the people of the Presbyterian Church I began to realize that really we both have important work to do uh, Because there were so many who had left as I had had to leave and there were many who had stayed and had given up for at least a time, you know, opportunity to do ministry as ordained clergy or elders. And so um, we were working at the same time together. And so I was very intentional about coming to to events when I could. Um, Whenever Janie was in the southeast, I would drive to Atlanta or wherever it was and and try to connect up with her. Uh, This all came to a uh, real action in 2000 when my Soul force involvement came to General Assembly at Long Beach and I was one of the 99 who was arrested there. Um, But prior to that, I had already done something very, very deliberately. Um, The Dalmich Relief Serve was forming its regional affiliates. And uh, Atlanta was the center of the, the Dalmich Relief Serve South, but really didn't reach out beyond the metro area very far. And so I challenged Janie to get together a group and I gave him their first road trip through Alabama. and We visited four cities. Uh, Mobile, Montgomery, Tuscaloosa, and Huntsville. And out of that, two more like churches emerged. Um, one of them was immediate. Uh, University Presbyterian in Tuscaloosa became a more like church. Um, the pastor there had been very friendly. She has a gay son. Um, but the other church, ironically, had the, as its uh, interim pastor, because they were between pastorates, their predecessors had been classmates of mine in seminary. Um, and the pastor who was their interim had been in Mobile and I had spoken at his church before. And he happened to know Marty Reitmeier's, um father um, as, as their circles. Yeah, it, was, it was really a small world as we began to, to share and then when they called their next pastor, who was still there, Elizabeth O'Neill, um, they then worked that process, because Sid, Sid Batts did not feel like it was appropriate for him as an interim to take them through that process. He said they needed to do that with their, their new pastor. So there was a lot of integrity in that. Um, and, and we had a grand time, I could tell you stories, but I'll spare those. Um, but that was the first that all May Freely Serve, more like welcoming congregation uh, tour of an area where there wasn't much of a presence of some of the national organizations on the ground locally. Um, after 2000, um, I still stayed in touch, 2006 General Assembly came to Birmingham. And I wasn't really involved in the, the politics and the polity and the G- General Assembly uh, work that was being done um, by, the, by the different groups. Um, but I did connect, I did go to and, and work their ta- uh, tables and, and during the plenaries of General Assembly business, um, I stayed at the, that, uh, the table for that all Me fully serve and was just sort of hanging out there because there were maybe five or 10 people in the whole of the exhibit hall, but you know, I just stayed. And an African observer, uh, official status observer from one of the African churches was wandering the room when nobody was in there and that was his opportune moment to come over to our tables, and we started talking. And he was de- he was generally inquiring. He was you know troubled is not the right word for it. He was he was exploring you know the issue with an open mind, but needed a safe place to do it. And so this moment was a good time. <laughs> and um, he came over and, and he was looking at the materials, and he, and then he said, "Well, I just I just don't understand." how do you decide who's the man and who's the woman in your relationships? And I just sort of did my little smile and laugh and said, well, we're not bound by the gender roles. So we can decide who does what best and who has the time. And so we're freed as a relationship to work that out mutually. And he kind of said, hmm, that sounds like that's a good idea. (laughs) Um, And he left. You know after looking again some more at the tables but but i knew in that moment that change was happening one by one as we told our stories as people who were willing to listen would would have the moment to hear someone else's truth um and at the end of that general assembly um the that only fully serve and the other groups had a silent demonstration just holding posters as people were entering the closing worship and there was a long set of stairs coming up to one of the entrances and we were at this, on the sidewalk right above those stairs. And I happened to be standing closest to the stairwell. Middle-aged man, conservatively dressed, came walking up the steps. And, of course, when you're walking up the steps, you're looking down. And then he looks up and sees us, and he starts shaking his head. And I knew, you know, okay, here's here's somebody that's, that's not on board with us. Um, but he had a look on his face that was different from some of the... The adversaries we have dealt with before and he looked at me and he just said and it was from his heart he just said why can't y'all all just be like me and in that moment I knew what I needed to say back I said you know I thought as Christians we were called to become more like Christ not more like each other and he kind of looked at me like that's right and I just left it there Gave him room to sit with that, and, and he walked on. He was no longer shaking his head. He was—I could tell—he was thinking. He was really thinking. What, what, what is my reason for this? You know. Um, and again, it was just one of those small moments when I saw change happening. Uh, but there was a long way to go. Um, then in 2010, uh, Force National—I'm involved with Soulforce Alabama, which is a local chapter—but uh, Soulforce National was going to do another. Uh, involvement with the Presbyterian Church, and um, there was a small core group of us, but only two of us were Presbyterian, and I had been very deliberate in my soul force work in saying that people from a diff- each tradition should go back to their own tradition. Um, and so it, I knew I had to go to the General Assembly in Minneapolis uh, with that action. Uh, we got there, um, there were two things, two committees working, one was on marriage and one was on ordination. There were so many people signing up that we knew they were going to do a, a, a draw or a lottery for who got to speak. I got to speak at both committees. It was just one of those God things, I call it, you know, that, you know where it worked out. Um, and for me, that's, that was important. Um, but I got involved much more deeply with the politic part of, of the uh, organizations working uh, for change. Um, General Assembly then, in the plenary sessions, um, passed what became 10a and was the change in the book of order but they they failed by just a few votes on the marriage well the soul force folks got upset and they went back to meet about what to do and one of the one of the people from one, the, representing the Ally groups was meeting with us um, and as they decided to do a demonstration similar to one they had done in a Lutheran uh, assembly um, our allies said, that is just not okay with us as Presbyterians, and the two, and when I realized the allies were on board with this, it was like a sole force principles, you don't violate your allies, but the others could not hear that, and the, the other Presbyterian was newly out and um, wanted to get his feet wet with, with with a direct action. And so they went ahead and did it, and I couldn't participate. And we had, during each of the the, uh, votes on our issues, we had stood in a visible place to the commissioners, not in front of them, but at the back, um, praying for their decision. Well, I went back and took my place at that place and prayed for what was going on that would not do harm. But I also went and told our allies, they're coming, (laughs) let your people know so that this doesn't blindside them. Um, and I had been working with the Presbytery exec who was there and, of course, the Presbytery execs sit behind the commissioners and had told him so he could tell the Presbytery execs because they wouldn't be privy to all that the commissioners were hearing or that, that the uh, moderator would hear directly from our allies. Um, but I felt very betrayed by that, um, almost as badly as when the person who had outed me because I had been a friend. Um, and so. I came back to 2012 to sort of redeem the soul force part of me um, and work again. So I've spoken to the 2012 and 2014 committees as well and have worked with that. Um, I worked with the TNA Passage uh, when they were working on the, the canvassing of, of local presbyteries. Um, but for me, that's been a, a major part of my process is using the healing from the soul force from the outside. And, and the part of that for me also is how many of us have had to leave and it's the unfinished business of General Assembly because there is no process for reconciliation for those of us who have left. If I were to go, and I had explored it, I actually, I had an opportunity to apply and um, had a friend who was on the Committee on Ministry in the Presbytery to talk to about what the process might be. Because I'm not from uh, UCC or some recognized reform tradition where I was ordained, they would require I go back and start over again. After having been in relationship with the Presbyterian Committee on Ministry for, for two and a half years while I was in seminary, um, that uh, you know I don't know where I would be because I had already taken three of the ordination exams and passed them with, with very good scores. Um, I don't know where I would be with um, the whole question of if you're not from a Reformed tradition, you have to be reordained, and to me that's like rebaptizing. So there is some real unfinished business with how to reconcile with the 40 years of us who have not been able to stay in the Presbyterian Church and have gone elsewhere. Um, and the other issue is, um, we, we were talking about in, in our group, um, how we have been changed by this process in the church. Um, but I'm in Alabama and i'm very aware of the african-american part of our church that is just culturally and theologically in such a different place Um, and we have a lot of work still to do around that um, you know uh, in terms of the healing there's an hbc historic black college university in tuscaloosa uh, that's presbyterian affiliated um, there are problems there on campus, and you know, how do we work with them um, to, to create change? Because then that institution will become a witness to the entire African-American community that thinks that it's a white issue, or that it's, you know, and, and it's all kinds of stuff around that. Um, still in the african there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, but the unfinished business is the reconciliation process. Um, you know, 10A went from here forward. It didn't deal with 40 years of the past. And so um, that's where I'm coming from and I know it's a part of of the change uh, that still needs to happen. There is still some significant work to be done politically within the church on the polity of reconciliation because there isn't any right
1: now. On that specific issue, how would you structure that? I guess it'd be an overture.
0: (laughs) Um... There are are really two ways I could see that being done. One is to add a clause for discretion for the Presbytery Committee on Ministry and preparation for ministry to work together on someone attempting to transfer credentials with recognition of their previous calling that had been denied that the polity has now changed. And they would then have the discretion to work that out, negotiate that with each individual person. That would be a very simple wording. Uh, The other would be to address more specifically those specific areas of that section that talks about ordination uh, and transfers and to make those changes in it. And that would be a much larger document of of proposal. Um, And um, there would still need to be some discretion and negotiation allowed in that between the candidate The presbytery committees that are involved. Um, The other thing that is a big part of that is churches willing to take that risk of entering that unknown of will this person be approved or not. Um, You know it's one thing to take someone fresh out of seminary who's gone through the process, it's quite another to take somebody who's been somewhere else doing something else and you don't know if they're going to get through the process or not. Because and you know the, for example, the requirement right now would be that I resign my my position, join the Presbyterian Church and start over again and that's just not that's just not appropriate to reconciliation. Um, and so the the question there's two ways it could be addressed. One is through a clause that would allow the presbyteries to negotiate what what would be appropriate to meeting the standards given the previous experience. Yeah. I went through 25 years ago you know i aced the polity exam but polity isn't the same anymore (laughs) so you know there would be but what i wouldn't call it remedial but i would need an update you know um and 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 what would that be and how would that be worked out with the ordination exam process because that's a whole other part of this that that would have to be addressed um, is how those who had had taken the exams 25 30 years ago um, or someone, uh, I noticed that one of the people was had their their ordination reordained or whatever, and it's like you don't rebaptize, you know. And for me, the, the theology behind that is that rebaptism denies your previous journey of faith. Well, reordination denies my previous twenty-five ne- years of ministry. I just can't go there, uh, I, not with integrity to the to the to who I am and and the calling and the faith and the life I've lived. So. That's, that would be the two answers that I would have. Um.
1: Separate question um, about the internal dynamic of what we'll call the movement, mm-hmm. um, which, to be specific, when we're talking about the, the liberation movement for gays and lesbians mm-hmm. and so the relationship or the dynamic that exists between those um, like yourself mm-hmm. who... Um, whose call led them away from the we'll call it the battle line. The institution. Lives, the, the institutional battle line. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those who actually have been at that grindstone, right? I, I, it's an interesting dynamic that I witness as I mm-hmm. as I as I check the group. Mm-hmm. And there is a there is still a we you know, that, that focuses on the liberation aspect. But I'm wondering if you could double click that and maybe give some, some, some insight to some of the other stuff that, that you know, some of the nuances in that, in that, that bracket. That.
0: For me, I can say I began to realize that we had equally valid ministries, um, that mine was just in a different form than theirs. Um, but I could work with them and I could come and speak with a voice that they didn't speak with. Um, It's like when I went back to the Presbyterian in North Alabama and spoke as the person who had been in the Presbyterian process who had been denied. Those are voices that were not being heard in Alabama during the conversation around the issues. Um, and, And that is an important voice. And it's important that people stayed and fought. Um, each of us has made our own sacrifices. It was a very difficult thing for me to leave the Presbyterian Church. I felt like a, a, you know, a lifelong relationship and family had been broken. Um, but out of that, um, I have also come to an awareness that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it's not about any denomination. <laughs> um, you know, so there's a sense in which I have grown beyond the denominational identity, but I am still so Presbyterian. <laughs> Um, And I find it difficult to be in places where the decency and an order and the the integrity of polity and working a process as slow and as crazy as it can be (laughs) um, is far better than making rapid changes when you make mistakes. And that's actually what happened with Amendment B back in the 70s. 1973, the DSM changed the classification of homosexuality from being a disease to being a mental health condition related to social oppression. Um, And the churches then had to deal with that because all of a sudden their committees on preparation for ministry could not call us sick. So they had to go to the center side. And, 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 you know, that's where we wound up on a decision made with only three years real reflection. And it wasn't even that. It hadn't been studied. The study came out and people didn't do it. Um, but that slower process of doing the theological work, of really examining and listening to the stories, um, is so important. Uh, and the stories that are not heard, I'm really excited that the people who are coming back here to this event um, from the same stories I've had. Uh, I met Susan Leo in 1990 at the same time that I, I met Jamie Sparr. There's a whole other story around that. I was just coming out. As I had said earlier, and uh, at, the, at the conference on Saturday morning, they had a table with like eight seats or ten seats around it, and it had a card that says, for lesbian seminarians. And I said, Susan Leo had picked me up at Larkspur Landing from, you know, coming from the airport on the shuttle. And um, I really kind of liked her and, and thought she was a cool person. And I said, if she sits there, I'll sit there. Well, Susan Leah walks in and sits right down, so I say, okay, so I go sit down. Little alone to me was there was another person on the airplane from Atlanta, from Candler Seminary, who had seen me and said, if I sat there, she sits there. So there was this sort of <laughs> domino effect of people <laughs> coming out, you know, because, because they saw somebody else yeah. um, do it. And uh, so I have, you know, kind of, I've not kept in touch with Susan, but I, was, I saw she's supposed to be here. And, And so this connecting of those of us that have had to leave to go and do our ministries, uh, it's a very difficult decision between staying and working for change and following that calling that said, you are called to pastor my people. Um, And, you know, Janie did a wonderful job of that, of pastoring God's people through that all may freely serve. Uh, But... In Alabama, that needed to have a form of a place where people go and worship because there weren't any places when I went went there in in the '90s. Um, Until we did that little tour, there weren't any more light churches that were identifiable. Um, So, So did you question? (laughs) You were asking about the other exciting for me is the collaboration. I have I have have watched as that has been built. And I, I and I know there's always that sense of competition, but what I have seen is each entity come up with what its strengths are, to recognize in, in one another, um, and then to realize that they could each do their work together without competing with each other, by using their specialization strengths. And so when they had um, people coming to tell their stories, there were a lot of people from that all Dolmets really serve. Who have been telling their stories that came in, you yeah, but the people in Covenant Network know how to work the politics. I am not a politician. <laughs> I am far too direct. <laughs> um, and and so you know, each does their work best in that that mutual respect for what each one does is what I have admired in this process that they have built that over the years. Um, it was difficult. There were some combinations. Um, but but to realize that they were reaching different people and they had a different function in the process and that those functions were equally important. That one could not do it alone. Um, and that, that to me was was I'm not sure what how, how to describe it. it. It was it was a give me a warm feeling, you know, that, that we can collaborate. We can have different ministries, but we can collaborate together.
1: What is your sense of the status of that collaborative posture and relationship given now the advent of, of the, the New Day, as it were? Um, and, and speak of it, if you could, in relationship to some of the political aspects that you uh, most in particular the reconciliation. Um,
0: actually, my biggest concern has been where are they gonna go from now, now that, that this has been solved? And my point is, is it's not been solved. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, they still need to collaborate on, on finishing uh, a reconciliation process and um, to be on the alert for the next whoever it is that's outside. Uh, unfortunately, the polity of the Presbyterian denomination is premised on Robert's Rules of Order and debate, <laughs> and it always creates winners and losers. And I don't see the church being reconciled and united until they change that structure. And that's a whole other issue. <laughs> it feels so unPresbyterian, but until that conversation becomes one where we can dialogue and disagree without having to vote and have winners and losers, um, there's going to be some tension and some disunity because of the power structure of that dialogue and who wins the vote. And and that's that's way beyond what anybody's thinking right now in the Presbyterian Church. But I see that as an issue. Um, and the the these groups have come together, and and it is about that all may freely serve. It is about the inclusion of every member of, us and and how do we do that? And, and being aware of other ways is this whole biasing will resurface again. You know, was it women? Was it African Americans? Was it you know yeah. You know, we're dealing with with immigrants, and so it's still the race issue, the culture issue. Um, so, how are we going to relate to our, our um, brothers and sisters in other countries? Because Presbyterians are organized nationally. You know, I'm, I'm aware of the Anglican community really struggling with this. well, so are the Presbyterians. You know, I mentioned the African Observer here. Uh, what are our relationships going to be? We've got to work through that. There's there's a lot more work to do there about what mutual relationships in the church means, um, and I think we're learning that.
1: Um, last thing that occurs to me to ask is um, so the issue of diversity, mm-hmm. right? Um, all liberation movements are cousins.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, in light of the fact that that's the fact, and also the fact that, generally speaking, those liberation movements are are, are monophonically focused mm-hmm. in their own specific personal issue, um, I'm wondering if this if this this place and time um, affords an opportunity that you can see for a, for a lateral um, conversational conversation between liberation movements that in fact can can um, create a more powerful presence on that on that i'm wondering just uh, your imagination concerning oh yes your observations.
0: um and th- in fact that's in my own ministry because uh, i'm a, a pastor of a very small church co-pastor actually with a very small church i have other time for doing things like this work but i'm also involved in interfaith work um and, and the soul force work but the interfaith work um for me, is is about how that is coming into play with other liberation issues, um, and particularly the Middle East uh, and the Arab-Israeli conflicts. Um, and I am aware of the truth and reconciliation process. That's from my my Sajjagraha roots in, in so forth. Um, the amazing, unbelievable miracle of South Africa's process. Um, and I'm very aware that Mandela, early in that process, when he was still in jail, but not at Robben Island, um, and was in dialogue with the African uh, South African white leaders, he was very aware of the fear factor. And um, I think that that is the factor in every discrimination, the fear of the different, the fear of, that someone else um doesn't have the same values or whatever. And we're not talking about our common values. We're talking about our theological differences in all these conflicts. Um, and that model is, is important to me, but I realize that the barrier is fear. And I come from a biology background, so a little chemistry, the energy of activation to get over, you know, to, to, to have the reaction, to have the event happen is so high in some situations for that liberation, for that reconciliation to happen. Because liberation to me is really about reconciliation, about being accepted as a full human being uh, and included in uh, an equal and mutual relationship within the larger community and and society of the world. That fear is so difficult to overcome. Um, And that's the really hard work for people of faith because faith is the antithesis of fear. Um, or vice versa, if you want to say it, vice versa. F- fear will kill faith. And, and, and that's the struggle I see spiritually in all of these liberation movements is how do we overcome our fear to, to see each other as human beings, to be in community together with mutual respect. And, and that is the larger work, and that is the specific work for this issue, and that's going to be the specific work on race, and that's going to be the specific work, work on gender, and on the culturism, and immigration, and, and you know, the, the, the conflicts in the Middle East, um, or wherever else they come up, um, and it's how our faith can overcome that fear. Um, and we're not used to doing that. We're so used to having people around us like us that we haven't had to have a very high, but we've got to build that ability in our faith to listen to someone else's faith and to, and to trust that their values, that their goals are not going to be harmful to us. And, and Mandela saw that. Um, Gandhi saw that. Um, and it's also what kind of leaders we raise up. Um, Gandhi was very deliberate about um, trying to make sure that the people that were in his movement were prepared to then transition to leadership. Kind of like Bayard Rustin, you know, when do you go from protest to negotiation? You have to change your relationship and what you're willing to do in that process. And uh, we have a lot of work to do on that. It we have just me. scratched the surface.
1: It strikes me as the perfect time to strike that match Yeah. at this moment. Okay. Thank you. Thank y'all.